All right, we're back. That's so fringy podcast. We are here with another episode with a very special guest, Brian Gadawa. That's right, Brian Gadawa. If you haven't heard of Brian Gadawa, he is a screenwriter and author. Um, he started out in Hollywood writing screenplays and things like that, and uh, then he got into some biblical research and found um, the idea to go through and do a fiction version of the conversation of the Nephilim, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, and all of those things. And so he has lots of different series, like the Chronicles of the Nephilim, the Chronicles of the Watchers, the Chronicles of the Apocrypha, lots of things like that. He's also has um, in times Bible prophecy, God against the gods, um, Holy World worldviews, all of this stuff you can find on Amazon. And um, what I like is that he reads all of his own um, books on Audible. So if you go on to Audible and you want to listen to these, uh, he reads all of his own books and he does a really good job. So, hmm. yeah, you guys should give him a check out. Uh, his books are very, very interesting. Um, he's got a lot of good um storytelling ability that's why i really like this guy and you'll hear on this episode he's gonna just be basically going and talking and talking and talking but that's kind of what we wanted him to do there's a lot of information that we asked him to cover and in order for him to do that he would have to talk for long periods of time and so um we know that it's going to be a lot of him so uh i know you're gonna miss us (laughs) and hearing our beautiful voices but I know that you'll be okay, so, you know, we'll pray for you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, with that, uh, what else do we have? Well, don't forget to like and subscribe and share. It's definitely working. We're seeing the numbers going up, and people are are hearing the truth, so... Thank you guys very yeah, much. This is awesome. We're really having a good time. And you might have noticed that we haven't had a couple of fringy morsels in the last couple of weeks. Uh, that's mostly because we've been trying to get ready for a graduate. Um, we're having a graduation party and uh, we're going to be doing all the yard work. Yeah, we're so going to be yard work. sending one out of the nest into the world quite promptly, hopefully. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I need somebody to no, do my yard work. No, and I had to get work. my treatment done last week. So every six months I go in and get a uh, kind of like a chemo treatment to keep my MS in check. Yeah. So I've been I've been down and out, but I'm starting to get back. Yep. So we're uh, we have a couple more guests lined up that you're gonna like. Yep. We've got eyes on the right coming. Yep. If you guys haven't uh, heard about her, she her does, Instagram is awesome. Yeah, she's got a lot of good information on her Instagram, and she's also um, she she has a podcast or had a no, podcast. Had a podcast. And so that's how we found her originally, and now we we've I been following her. Think her Instagram is eyes on the right four You should be able to find her on that. Yeah, so you can look her up before we have her on, but we're going to be having that episode drop here pretty soon. We also have a lot of other people on the docket, plus some of the, um, you know, more of a just me, Bethany, and Kristen conversation. So we'll be doing some research for all of those as well. Mm -hmm. So that's it. 
a lot of things planned. Yeah. We're, we're just going where God's leading us. Moving and shaking, and we're hoping you guys are enjoying every bit of it. So with that, we're going to get into the episode, and we hope that you enjoy all of it. Mr. Brian Gadawa. Brian Gadawa, here he comes. God bless you all. We love you. And uh, here we go. We are here with Brian Gadawa. Uh, he is an author and uh, screenwriter, and we're so excited uh, that you're here with us, Brian. Thanks for thanks for agreeing to come on. Thanks for having me, y'all. Oh, I'm welcome. from Texas now, so y'all. Oh yeah, I, like it. <laughs> I had heard that you you had moved. How was that? Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was like leaving a s hole. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, at first, it was like arriving in paradise, but okay. After a couple of years, now we know the flaws and the you know the the, the advantages and disadvantages of both states, and um, but yeah. still, um, just the horrors that are going on in California of of you know uh, violating constitutional freedoms, and it's not going to get better. So um, every week, I see what's in the news in California, and I'm like, I'm so glad we left. So yeah. glad. Yeah, and it's it seems like it's everywhere now. You know, we've got planes, trains, and automobiles having all kinds of problems. Things are exploding all over the place. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a real turmoil going on out there. And and we had we had talked with our um, listeners about who are they, and our one of our first podcasts was uh, who are they, and we wanted to get your perspective on that because you do a lot of writing about um, the Watchers and the kind of the Psalm eighty-two, uh, Deuteronomy thirty-two worldview. So if you, if you don't mind, um, we kind of introduced our audience to it a little bit, but we know that you probably would do a lot better of a job. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a quick overview of, of your understanding of the divine council. And, sure. Uh, and sure. I'd be happy views. to. Um, first, I'm just going to try to get my, um, I wanted to get some notes here up about the Psalm 82, realizing that um, there we go. Yeah, so um, I I uh, first stumbled upon the Divine Council um, over 12, 13 years ago when I started writing a my first novel, which was actually based on a screenplay. I was writing my uh, a screenplay on Noah, and it was called Noah Primeval. And when Darren Aronofsky uh, got his movie, I, I when I found out his he was making a movie, I thought, okay, you know, he's he's a big guy. I'm a little guy. My movie isn't going to get made. So I, I had to re sort of refiguring. So how, how can I get my story out? Because it was so cool. I was doing this research and I realized I had to write a novel. And the research that I did for that was um, was when I first kind of stumbled into the, um, you know, the what I call the watcher paradigm. But like you said, um, Michael Heiser has called it the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, as well as the divine council worldview, which I think are all fine um, explanations. Um, now, there's multiple components to these and um, to this view, but the research, I, I stumbled upon Michael Heiser, this was before he was famous, actually, and, you know, if you're 
I'm sure your audience knows by now that uh, Michael Heiser unfortunately just passed away uh, within within the last week um, of yeah. cancer, and um, so that's a deep tragedy for those of us who who've loved his. He was he was sort of the um, the legitimate evangelical scholar that could back up our conspiracy theories, you know, about yeah. Nephilim and all that stuff. Yep. And while I think there are a lot of conspiracy theories in the Nephilim nut crowd, as I call us. Um, you know, I do think that um, I have a difference of opinion with you know some of the other major authors on on this issue. So there's there's a wide berth of of ideas, and maybe we'll get to that tonight. But but I stumbled upon Michael Heiser, and and he, I I appreciate him so much because I felt so simpatico with him on many levels. You know, um, and I don't agree with him on every, everything either. But but his his biblical approach to uh, spelling out this divine council worldview. Uh, really connected with me, and that launched me into a just uh, an intense research that I've been doing up until the present present days. And what that you know, um, it's interesting. He, Michael Heiser, talked about how his introduction into this understanding came from Psalm eighty two when he was studying it, and the passage is so you know powerfully uh, clear in in many ways. That it was, it's, it was, it was a good sort of overview of the viewpoint. It, it covered a lot of the issues. I thought, you know, at least in a, in a in a um, introductory sense. So I ended up writing a book, Psalm eighty two, <laughs> about that because um, and I used that psalm as an outline for the major components of the of the understanding. So just real briefly, you know, um, Psalm 82 starts with verse one, God, um, that's Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. So it's a biblical word, divine council. It's not a made up word. Um, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And that word for gods in Hebrew is literally gods. Uh, in fact, it's the same word that's used of Yahweh. And one of the most... Um, uh, sort of um, eye-opening uh, revelations for me was because as an evangelical Christian, you know, I've had a staunch monotheistic understanding, Trinitarian, of course, sure. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are, are all God and yet three different persons. But nevertheless, the uh, a strong monotheistic definition of God and um, this verse is just one of many where we learn that the biblical Hebrew is not the same as English. The way that we say, you know, there are no other gods, you know, like there are no gods. What, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean, uh, well, divine beings who create and, you know, uh, have power over their creation. Maybe we think they're infinite, certainly transcendent, et cetera, all these elements. But that's not literally what the Bible means by that. Now, um, and what Heiser has, had brought out was this notion that the word Elohim is actually used of multiple beings other than Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. It's used of the spirit, the spirit of dead Saul. It's used of demons. It's used of angels, right? And so how to understand that word comes from understanding the context of the meaning of Elohim. And Elohim, in the in the end, Elohim is more of a word of a space of living, meaning beings of the transcendent realm, right? Beings that 
that exist in a realm transcendent from ours, the spirit world, whatever you want to call it, right? right. And so um, this is why you'll have verses in the Bible that says, you know, Yahweh is the God of gods, the Elohim of Elohim, meaning there are other beings called Elohim and they're divine, they're spiritual, but they're not anything, it's not polytheism is the point, because right. my personal Christian sort of upbringing uh, bristled at that because it sounds like polytheism or Mormonism, right? But if you understand how much of our modern day American Western understanding of the Bible and of these things have been influenced by uh, traditions that aren't necessarily biblical, and this is one of them. So we need to be able to speak about the spiritual world more biblically, and using the phrase gods is a fair is a fair translation of that. Uh, that doesn't mean there's multiple deities in terms of like the typical pantheon of deities, but it does mean that there are multiple divine beings in the spiritual realm that transcend this world, such as cherubim, seraphim, right? Uh, heavenly hosts that surround God's throne. These are all Elohim beings. So it's a sort of a state of being or a place of existence, so to speak. But nevertheless, it does carry that divine connotation to it. They're not just, um, div divine doesn't mean, uh, again, doesn't mean creator God. It just means they are in this higher spiritual plane. So in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And so there's, there's this concept that, and of course, elsewhere in the Bible, there's many passages that talk about God's heavenly host that surround his throne and they worship him. They counsel with him. You know, I think it's in um, 1 Kings 22, where it talks about these beings that count, God counsels with them. What shall I do about King Ahab, right? And some says this and some say that. And God says, um, one says, oh, I put a lying spirit into his, into his prophets. And God says, okay, go do that. So there's this sense in which um, God counsels with these beings. They worship him around this throne, but he also counsels with them. He sends them to do these gods to do his, his duties. Now, uh, this is another bad English translation problem that we have, which is the American or, you know, the English sort of concept is, and, and I think that unfortunately over the intertestamental period between the Testaments, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately there was a sloppiness of language that occurred where um, they just started to use the word angels for all of these beings. And yeah. angel is not a very good word because when we think of angel, what do we think of? You know, these heaven, these beings in white robes with wings, right? And of course, that's a complete cultural construct. They could have wings, but they, their Bible doesn't say they do. So, so how much of our understanding is created by tradition we don't realize. So angel actually just means messenger. Now in the Bible, the word angel is used of humans who are messengers. Yeah. It's used of Christians. Christians are messengers of God. But it is also used of some of these divine beings. So it's a generic term that became sort of too generic in my opinion. Uh, but nevertheless, um, um, you know, other passages, you know, can sometimes use that word angels, but they're surrounding his throne, seraphim, the cherubim, all this stuff. And um, so this concept is, it's, and by the way, it's a judicial throne. Again, I think in this very context of this passage, God says he's, he's taken his place in the council and he holds judgment. So it's yeah. like a law court. 
this law court shows up in other passages and where the high priest Joshua comes before the law court and the Satan, um, the adversary, who's like a prosecutor, comes and accuses God's people, right? So this is a, a concept that is commonly understood in Daniel 7, right? There's this throne of judgment. So, But it's a, it's a law court, so to speak, a spiritual law court. And normally that law court uh, is used by the prophets to bring their complaints about Israel before God, or the Satan in the Old Testament brings his accusations against God's people into that heavenly courtroom. So this is a courtroom going on. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly these gods? Show partiality to the wicked, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Main, uh, or, I'm sorry. He's showing partiality to the wickedness, wicked, wicked, and then it, the command comes, you should give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. But then it says, but they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. This are, these are the people. And it says, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, then it goes, I said, you are gods. This is the, this is the, the um, voice that's speaking. Um, I don't, it may be God. I'm, I'm not sure what the, from the context here, but I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so there's the concept that's going on here is that God has appointed these, somehow these divine beings to be, um, uh, um, to be judges over over the peoples, right? Over the peoples on earth. And they're supposed to rule justly, but they haven't been. So God's going to punish them. And even though they are God's Elohim, he says, even though you are divine, sons of the most high, this is going to be a very important turn, sons of the most high God, it's sons of God. Uh, nevertheless, you're going to die. So he's, he's judging them. Even though you're spiritual, you're supernatural, so to speak, I'm going to judge you and you're going to die because you did not judge righteously or justly over the peoples. Now, who are these people? Well, the last verse says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. And so the concept here is, is that God is saying he's going to judge these beings, he's going to judge the earth, but ultimately he will inherit the nations. Well, what does this mean? It, it, the, the, the implication here is that the nations are not in God's hand, and but they are in under the the nations are under these other beings, but he's going to judge them and he's going to take back, he's going to inherit the nations. Where does that come from? When did this occur? Well, this right. takes us back to um, Deuteronomy 32 8 through, through 9. <coughs> Excuse me, when it says, When the Most High, there it is, that phrase, Most High, remember, sons of the Most High, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Ah, there it is. What is this? He, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. So this is a reference to Babel. And we all know when God's divided the languages, he separated the peoples and those became the nations of Genesis 10. Wait, is it 10 or... Yeah, I think it's Genesis 10. You see a list of 70 nations. The mm -hmm. Jewish concept is those 70 Gentile nations, because they're all the Gentiles, they were... Um, uh, uh, they were divided at the Tower of Babel. God, what was God doing at Babel? He was judging them, right? Because they tried to reach to heaven and they tried to interact with with uh, beings that they shouldn't. And so, 
So he's saying, look, I gave you their inheritance by spreading you out and, and creating the nations. Genesis 9, 10 talks about that. Then he says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So it's saying, Yahweh says, I'm going to place Tower of Babel. You're all evil. I flooded the earth, tried to start over, but you still ended up worshiping false gods. So I'm going to separate you and place you under the authority of what? The sons of God. And it says, according to the number of the sons of God. What does that mean? Well, this term sons of God is a very specific theological term that if you st- look at it throughout all the Bible, these it's, it is the, it's another word for these heavenly hosts, these beings from God's throne. And um, so they're in authority over them. So this is what Psalm 82 is talking about. And that, that occurred, but God says, I'm going to keep Jacob or Israel for myself. So God will be the spiritual ter- authority over Israel and his land is going to be the land of Israel ultimately, right? But he's saying, I'm giving these other nations and their territories are going to be under other authorities, other spiritual authorities. This is the notion in the ancient world that that over uh, over the earthly authorities, whether it was a you know a nation or a king, sometimes even a city, there were spiritual authorities over them that were linked to those earthly authorities. This is why there's lots of talk in the Bible about when there's a war in, on earth, there's a war in heaven. Daniel four talks about this, right? Um, or no, I'm sorry, uh, I get I get them all mixed up. I'm I should be memorizing this better. Uh, Daniel, I think it's Daniel. Um, is it Daniel 9 or 10? Daniel 10, Daniel 10, that's it. When it talks about the Prince of Persian, the Prince of Greece, these are these territorial authorities, these beings over these nations or kings. And so um, consequently, that's what they thought was going on. The whole ancient world thought this way. It was even in, Plato even wrote about this in his uh, uh, Cretus or Credo. He, um, he wrote about the same concept of there being gods over the nations. So it was a general understanding. It's also a biblical understanding. Now, the question is, well, who are these sons of God that evidently didn't, didn't act justly, right? Well, who are they? And well, they're ultimately linked back to Another passage that comes way before that and where it all began. And where it all began was Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And that was that had always been the most the strangest Bible verse to me. And I used to just I, I don't understand. It's it's weird. Sounds mytho- mythical, even mythological. Yeah, I don't think anybody really understands that passage in, until you get this Dakota ring almost. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, I just sort of let it go because, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of things like that in the Bible and maybe someday I'll understand. Well, anyway, this is when Heiser sort of opened my eyes and it all begins back when, when the, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, Genesis 6, 1, and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God, there it is again, that term, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as wives as any they chose. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever only 120 years. Then it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore them children. And they were these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So there's different theories on this and you know, you can take up the whole hour talking about the theories, but basically the study of the sons of God is that the, these are not human kings who think they're divine and they're not sons of Seth, um, but they're actually spiritual beings from God's heavenly throne. But the concept here is very clear from, according to Second Peter and Jude, that these angels 
were bad angels. In other words, uh, again, there's that sloppy term of angels, right? Um, yeah. Jude is already using that term angels by then, but they're referring to this same event, and that is the sons of God. And they so these sons of God come to earth. They they violate God's heavenly division, right? The earth and the heaven, and beings. Just like in the in the old covenant, you know, he had all these separations of cloths and separations of foods. He was trying to stress the emphasis of there should be a holy distinction between um, certain things, and one of those things is male and female, right? The creation, right. male and female, earth and sky, land and water. All these separations are are are, are important, and the heavenly earthly separation is such that those beings should not intermingle. But they do, and these beings actually have sex with women, and they bear them Nephilim. Now that this is the notion, this is the time where atheists or unbelievers or whatever will will scoff and say, "Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's mythology. That's like the Greeks and all that." And yeah, all the all the religions do have theories that are or mythologies that are similar in, in many ways. Um, but of course, I I think that that would be true if something like that really occurred, then everybody would have and I, and I, some, their own story version as twisted as it may be. And, sure. and yeah. of course I would claim that the Bible is the accurate version, but nevertheless, so these, these, um, Nephilim, now what is Nephilim? And the, and the word for Nephilim, some scholars say it's fallen ones, but that's actually not true. That's a different vowel, uh, usage of the consonants. And Nephilim is actually giant. And the, you know, the, the translators of the Septuagint translated as giants. And there's, there's, I don't want to go into the scholarly argument for it, but um, there is the, 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 the result of the, the heavenly, or shall I say, to simplify the angel, angels having sex with women, <laughs> human women breeds a Nephilim and, and they're giants. And the concept here is that they're hybrids, they're hybrids and and they're evil because they also create the violence, they are part of the violence that results that ends up God, uh, having God destroy the earth. Um, it was an unusual, you know, every thought of man's heart was only wickedness continually and the violence on the earth was so extreme. And so, um, is this just a bizarre mythological thing? What's going on here? Um, there, there's a whole storyline of the Nephilim and giants that is theologically important in the Bible. It's not just this strange anomaly and, oh, there's a Goliath the giant too. No, there's actually a thread and we could, we can focus on that at, at some point. But in terms of dressing this sons of God thing is my, my important thing. So the, the, the idea here is that the sons of God are violating the heavenly earthly divide. And in doing so, they are violating God's commands. And so this is where we read about, like I said, I think it's important to, to note that the New Testament, this isn't just some crazy new theory. You know, uh, most of the church fathers, early church fathers believe this. Um, you know, it was only after uh, um, August, Augustine had um, Julius Africanus, I, I think, brought up the more human theory of the sons of God. But Augustine made it really popular because of his anti-Gnostic um, approach. He he really rejected the spiritual understanding of that, and he created a new, crafted a new way of interpreting the Nephilim as the as I'm sorry, the sons of God as being human. Um, 
But nevertheless, the New Testament authors do believe that, um, do believe in the supernatural interpretation of the sons of God. This is where Jude 6, the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, and that concept, stay in their own position, it's a residency. So in other words, they didn't stay in the residency of the, of the heavens or the earthly or the heavenly realm, but they left their proper dwelling. They, um, they violated that proper dwelling, right? They left it. They came to earth. He has, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until judgment. So these angels are being judged for leaving their dwelling of heaven. Well, who is that, right? And, um, there's nowhere else in the Bible that references anything like this, except for Genesis six sons of God are the, what the what the New Testament now calls angels in a generic sense, right? And, you know, it goes on to describe the glorious ones in Jude, which is another reference to the sons of God as, um, uh, and then also it references Sodom and Gomorrah. And it talks about the, those men indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And while mo most people argue that uh, that's homosexuality, um, although the, the, the attempt of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were, was homosexual and homosexual rape. Um, it, what Jude is actually referenced here, he's actually using that event to say, he's focusing more on the, he's focusing more on the fact that these men were wanting to have sex with angels because they sure. were the angels that were with Lot, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. unnatural desire is a uh, heterosarchs, unnatural flesh, strange flesh. Well, homosexuality is same sex, not strange sex, right? Or strange flesh. It's same flesh. Yeah. And but, you almost get the idea that they, they're wanting to get like superpowers or something. They're wanting to get yeah. that power. So they would, they would want to, to have that sex with them to see if they could get those powers. Yeah. Could be that they could actually, they could absolutely have thought that. Um, but the point here is that they're, they're pursuing unnatural flesh or a, a different flesh. And that would be the flesh of angels because angels are not human. They do have a flesh because it's a kind of interdimensional flesh that it can exist in the heavenly realm, but it also can come to earth and they can eat food because there's examples where Abraham cooked some food, right? So angels do have a flesh, but it's a different flesh than human flesh. So that's the New Testament sort of, you know, affirmation of that whole concept, that whole understanding. Um, so, so there's there's a mixture of, of issues here, of course, and um, not even dealing with the Nephilim, of course, but the sons of God concept, going back to Psalm 82. So the idea here is that that um, these these beings, uh, I see it like I, I I think of it this way. I think of it like Romans one talks about how God gives them over, gives over the sinful man who wants to worship the earth and worship other things instead of God. He gives them over to their sins and desires. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see what's going on here is that God is saying to the Tower of Babel, going back again, right? He says, look, if you're going to keep worshiping these gods, these false idols, these, you know, they're not the living God, uh, I'm going to give you over to them. I'm going to place you under the authority of these sons of God. I would argue they were the fallen sons of God that he was placing them under. Uh, but some people believe, no, they were good sons of God and then they went bad. Whatever, whatever the case is, these angels did not judge righteously over these nations. So here's the, here's the 
twist. Here's the here's what makes it all theologically relevant as a Christian in the New Covenant era. What's the whole point of this? Well, there's a, there's a theological point, and the theological point is if all these nations are are um, under the authority of these these uh, you know the Gentile nations, which in the Old Covenant it's always the Jews and everybody else were the Gentiles, and they were the cursed ones, right? Well, um, if if uh, if all these nations are under the authority or or the allotment, Deuteronomy thirty two says he they gave inheritance, so the the land was the inheritance of these beings. This is why the ancient world thought that way, um, and and. So he's giving them over. Okay, you're going to worship. So I'm going to give the Gentile nations over to these false gods. Go ahead and worship these sons of God, and they did. And um, but I'm going to keep my people. My people are going to be Israel, and I'm going to have. I'm going to take the land from somebody who owns it now, the Canaanites. But that's going to be my land, and I'm going to be the spirit, heavenly authority over Israel on earth, just like the other ones are. But here's the key: in the old covenant, it was. You had to become a Jew to become God's, to become part of God's people, to be with the living God. You had to forsake your Gentile identity and become a Jew. Well, what happens is the promise in the old in the old covenant was that one day a Messiah would come, and the Messiah would uh, ultimately uh, not just bring salvation to Israel, but he would bring the Gentiles into Israel. And that was the promise. And how would he do this? Well, we now know that through his death and resurrection and ascension to kingship, Christ does that. And here's the key. Going back to Psalm 82, verse 8, the last verse says, after all these people don't, don't uh, uh, not people, <laughs> all these beings do not judge justly. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Well, who inherits the nations? Actually, it's Messiah who does. Because Psalm, this is a notion um, going throughout all the messianic passages. You know, one of the classic ones is, of course, Psalm one, Psalm two. As for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. To, I have said my decree, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is obviously Messiah, and it's Jesus. And He says, "Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inher- your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." And so the idea here is that Messiah will inherit the nations. And how does he do that? Well, if you go back into Psalm 82, 8, arise, O God, judge the earth. Ah, the Apostle Paul does this. He goes back and he says, you know, the Greek uh, translation of that word arise is aneste, which is a word that Paul all uses to point to the resurrection. And of course, through the resurrection of Christ, that's what sets him apart. That's what um, gives him the authority, his 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 resurrection um, atones for sin, but also allows him to ascend to heaven where he is then enthroned as king over the universe and he inherits all the nations. Why is the theological importance of this is this. When Jesus dies and raised from the dead, he breaks the power and disinherits all those Gentile nations from those um, sons of God from those spiritual authorities and powers. So in other words, this is where you get the concept in the old covenant about the Gentiles are in darkness, right? They are, they are in bondage. They are in bondage to their gods. Well, Messiah, what Messiah does is he 
whereas God originally gave them those authority over them, Messiah will disinherit them, take back the land deeds, in other words. So Messiah is now, when he becomes king over all the earth, he takes away, shall we say, the title deeds of all these fallen Elohim, these fallen gods, right? And he does that through death, resurrection, and ascension. So the gospel is the power of God that allows men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation, sound familiar, through faith. They they don't have to become Jews. Just through faith in Christ, the Gentiles are also included in the kingdom of God. This is why, to me, this is the powerful and, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what your audience is like, but but for me as a Christian, this is the power of of the gospel um, expressed through the Christus Victor motif, which is Christ's victory over the powers. Mm-hmm. And this is the glory of this. This isn't just an esoteric theology, theological sort of um, uh, uh, obsession for people to you know look at these esoteric things. No, this is all leads up to the power of the gospel to free people from every tribe and nation, and it's it's Messiah that that does that. He judges them, takes away the land inheritance from them, and he inherits all the nations. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean that's that's basically like the grand finale right that's what they were waiting for this this had been promised for so long and they were they were waiting for him to come and then all of a sudden it happened and i feel like it just gets watered down in in the churches and i i guess i don't understand why they're not teaching us in the churches what do you think they don't teach this so i think the i you know obviously there's a there's several factors but i think the dominant I think the dominant reason is the very is the very thing that is now being broken down, which is we ha- we the church has been infected with modernism. What I mean by that is uh, rooted in the rooted in the Renaissance and in the Enlightenment, the, the belief that man's reason and empiricism, his his empirical observation, science, reason and science is superior and supernatural is not. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 1900, in 1900, the liberalism sought with with a lot of German theologians, I might add, sought to um, undermine the Bible, you know, attack it as being not true and mythological, et cetera. And and unfortunately, the fundamentalists, which that's when fundamentalism arose, with a good intent, which was to defend the Bible, say no, 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 the Bible is absolutely true, and it's literally uh, historically true, and in everything it says, et cetera. But unfortunately, that was an unwitting adoption of the very standards of of epistemology and standards of truth that the godless world was foisting on us. And what that meant was Christians then sought to defend and seek and understand the Bible entirely literally as they read it in English. And what that creates is a a lack of contextual understanding of the original ancient Hebrew Near Eastern context. And I think that there's been a surge in recent years. I'm very positive about this um, and and a surge to, to, to seek to understand the Bible in its original ancient Hebrew and Near Eastern context. So what that means is you start to understand a lot of these words behind the English are not necessarily well translated, and they're rooted in 
a lot of concepts and worldview concepts of the ancient world that we no longer have today. So this is, you know, the, and, and, and the, the intent to go back and understand it in that original context is what's opening the doorway of our understanding. So most of the people that I've interacted with that have fought against this are people who have this mentality of the Bible's just literally true and everything it literally says. And they don't realize what they're really saying is the Bible is true as I, as a modern scientific person would interpret it, not as they intended it in the ancient world, you know, and, and, and that, that has broad, broad ramifications. They think they're being the most biblical or the most, honoring of the Bible, but in fact, they're actually imposing an imperialistic uh, distortion upon God's word. So in fact, they're actually doing the opposite. That's what I would argue. Now, this isn't something, uh, this isn't something that I intend to, to argue as a necessarily a fighting point to go out and condemn them. I was there myself for many years. So I understand what that's like. You think you're honoring the Bible by interpreting it literally, and you don't understand that. No, there's no such thing as, as absolute literalness in any writing, you know, meaning even historical writing, like modern day people will write things about history and use figurative and and poetic language to describe the meaning of the events. So uh, we we all know this, yet for some reason, when we look at the Bible, we, because we've been infected by the modernity and the scientific enlightenment understanding, we try to fit it into those categories in which it doesn't fit. Sure. Yeah. yeah and, and keeping in that theme of context, um, could you talk to us a little bit about Satan? Because we... You know, we get a lot of people asking us about who is Satan, how does that look, and everything like that. And I, <clears throat> you know, and excuse me, my research, uh, I kind of came to the conclusion that we're looking at more of a, a force or, or a chaos or something along those lines. Um, do you think that Satan is is a being that he he is a, a single being, or do you think he's more of a motif or a, or a chaos? Well, I think this is a complex issue. Now, I've written about this in my books, um, When Giants Were Upon the Earth okay. and When Watchers Ruled the Nations. But in all honesty, I think one of the best books that helped me get more clarity to begin to organize my thoughts and understanding uh, was Deconstructing Lucifer by a guy named David Lowe, L-O-W-E. And I think it's a very helpful book for people who want to approach this, look into this subject. Number one- Excuse me, there's a lot of factors, but first of all, the name, Satan. Satan is actually not, this is another one of these English, this is where so many, so many people think they're reading the English Bible. I think this is literally God's word and they don't realize that the translation is actually, a lot of times it's guessing or it's just approximating because they don't know how else to translate it. And sure. the Satan is one of those words that Satan is actually a transliteration the word is actually Satan. It's literally that word, just like Nephilim is not translated. It's transliterated because, um, well, there's, there could be many reasons, but, um, Satan is not the name of a being. It's actually the, the phrases, the Satan. It's always used. There's maybe one or two exceptions, but it's always used as the Satan. What does that mean? What that means is in say, the word Satan is when it's tr- used in other contexts in the old, old and New Testament, it actually means adversary or accuser. 
And this is very relevant because, so what it's saying is the accuser or the adversary. Now, I would argue that it's more of an office, not, I don't, Satan, Satan is connected to chaos for sure, you know, uh, uh, and, and it, Satan is used metaphorically in context, but, but the way the Old Testament uses it is kind of different from the New, New Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Satan, which only occurs in a few verses, um, the sat the word the Satan is used. So there's a there's an instance where David uh, chooses to um, to take a census of Israel, and he wasn't supposed to. God had told him not to. There, it's important because it, it shows you that the word the Satan is actually used of God. First Chronicles, Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. That's in First Chronicles 21. All right. But Second Samuel 24. There we go. Finally getting, I got to do some better memorizing. I guess when you get older, it gets harder to memory. Remember where things are. I just know it's there. So listen to this. Second Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Talk about blowing your mind, right? It's the same thing, but one right. says Satan, one says Yahweh. Well, if you understand the Satan is what it's saying, and that means the adversary. And what it's saying here is God is not Satan, and Satan is not a being with a name. There's not a Satan being. Uh, I'm sorry. There's not a Satan individual. Right. Um, it's saying that God was an adversary at that moment against Israel, and he's the one who did that, right? So he's an adversary against Israel. This is this is evidence of the the fact that the Satan means the adversary, okay? And so there's a couple of places where Satan shows up, and he's always basically a part of God. Now, get a look at this in Job 1 and 2, and then um, 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 I think it's in, I don't, okay, uh, it's not, not in Malachi, but one of the smaller prophet books where Joshua comes before God. And he, in, always, in those contexts, he's always part of God's heavenly heavenly divine counsel mm -hmm. and he's an accuser in Job, right? Ah, you know, you did, but he's actually part of God's counsel. It's not like he's, he's a being who's separated on earth, right? He's actually part of God's counsel. He acts like a prosecutor. He's the one that goes out and accuses people of the crime before God's heavenly throne. See, and the same thing uh, when he's with the, the, the priest Joshua, you know, the high priest Joshua. So what I'm getting at here is in the Old Testament, Satan is not the Satan is not um, is not described. He's described as a part of God's heavenly throne, and he's, he's part of God's um, divine counsel. And his purpose mm -hmm. is to accuse, but that's part of the whole legal system, right? So the the only the other thing is is everyone always uh, connects Satan to the you know the serpent in in the garden, and I think that. This is where he's not in the Old Testament. He's not connected in that way. Now he is in the New Testament, and that is a valid reason for us to make that connection. It's a theological connection, I would argue. But nevertheless, this idea of the Satan or the accuser, I do think he becomes a little bit more explicit and direct in the in the um, New Testament, where you know he interacts with Jesus. But here's the thing: um, again, it's called he's called the accuser or the adversary. So I would argue it, there's an office, but I don't think it has to be a singular being 
who 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 has that purpose. So in the Old Testament, he may have been it may have just been a certain appointed being. Now by the time of the New Testament, though, there is a specific being who is challenging Jesus, and in the Book of Revelation, we see you know the Satan is connected to the serpent of old, and and so I think it's legitimate to make those theological connections. Um, but uh, and and also in in the Book of Revelation, that's where he becomes sort of a, a agent of chaos for sure. Um, he, Satan is described as the seven headed dragon. And the seven-headed dragon is Leviathan imagery, and Leviathan imagery comes from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Leviathan is a sea dragon that symbolizes chaos. So that's where you're you're making those connections. There's a lot of these connections going on. You know, many people have, many Christians have thought Leviathan is a dinosaur. You know, it's like, no, no, it's not. You study it. And in the ancient Near Eastern context, all the other nations around Israel, as well as Israel, use the sea dragon of chaos with multiple heads, I might add. Uh, even in the Old Testament, it says that um, uh, Leviathan has multiple heads. Let's see if I can find that. Psalm, Psalm 74, 14. When God divides the seas, talking about the Red Sea, you broke the heads of the sea monsters. You crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan. What's going, what does that mean? Well, it, the concept was it had multiple heads. Seven heads was the usual. Uh, uh, Leviathan of the Canaanite had seven heads. This is a symbolic image of chaos and the notion was whenever God creates his order, his covenanted order, like with Moses, right? He's going to create his covenanted order at Sinai. He first crushes the heads of chaos that have been, you know, keeping uh, Israel enslaved for f 400 years, right? He crushes that chaos and creates his order. And so that's the Leviathan notion. So yeah, Leviathan is then connected to sort of the uh, the seven-headed dragon in Revelation and that seven-headed dragon is connected to say. So there is there are these these motifs and theological connections I would call them, but I would I don't conclude then that they're all hard core, they're exactly the same being or thing or whatever. He's making those theological connections to make a point. And, um, and that is that, you know, and even if there is a, by the New Testament time, if that, that particular Satan that was confronting with Jesus, if he's the final one, that's fine with me, you know, what, however you want to call it, you know, Jesus said that, uh, um, he's the God of this world, right? Or the God of this age is actually the better translation. And so, um, I think, I hope I didn't ramble off into, into too far no, down the good. path there. No, that's but good. We that, those are just some samplings of the, of the kind of material we can talk about Satan. And by the way, another book I highly recommend is, um, Demons by Michael Heiser. He goes yes. over all these demonic creatures biblically and describes them in context of the ancient world and what they all mean, whether it's demons, um, the Satan, he talks about all these, all these uh, sort of uh, demonic entities that are also in the Old Testament in a way that many people don't even realize because the English is, doesn't always translate it well. Yeah, yeah I appreciate you, you saying all that because, you know, we, we want our audience to know who our enemy is. You know, we, we have to know who it is that's against us. And we also need to, 
to have knowledge because as the Bible says, you know, without knowledge, our, my people perish. And, and we've, we've been really pushing that people seek this knowledge out and, and, and figure these things out for themselves. So I guess, um, we'll, we'll end with what are, what are some of the things that you're working on right now? And, uh, I, I know that, uh, you've done some screenplays and you've also done some documentaries. Can you speak to us about, um, what you're working on right now? Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say also the proof of Nephilim, you know, which we didn't go into, but the proof of Nephilim, see, there's a Nephilim skull right there. I just bought one today. Did you get it on Amazon? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's this artist that makes them and they're really cool. They're really realistic. Um, his name is, uh, you, you actually, you got to get it on uh, eBay. He's, his name is Zane, the artist named Zane or something. <laughs> they're really cool. He does a lot of skulls, but one of them is the, uh, is, does a Peruvian, um, elongated skulls, which do actually exist down in Peru. Um, right. but anyway, um, so what am I working on? So I'm continuing my series of Chronicles of the Watchers. So I have, I have several series. Um, this all began with Chronicles of the Nephilim. It's about, that's eight novels. It starts with Noah primeval. I have a novel about Enoch, which is sort of a prequel to Noah. Right. And then I, sure. um, I go into Abraham, David, uh, Joshua, Caleb, and I end with Jesus and you, people might think, what does Jesus have to do with Nephilim? Ha ha ha. Get the novel. You'll find out. <laughs> and, it's not, and it's not artificially constructed. It's, it's true theology in there. Anyway, um, so what I did was I wanted to tell the story, retell biblical stories, being true to the spirit of them, and fill in between the, uh, between the facts with fiction that would make sense of the facts and be biblically faithful, but also sort of have a have a fantastical aspect to it where I'm trying to show the spiritual world. What might the spiritual world look like? And so in that sense, I've got some sort of fantasy, uh, whatever, fantasy genre or, um, you know, fantastical imagery. You know, I show these gods and what they might be like and how they might interact with the world, that kind of a thing. But my goal was, was to embody the, all this theology I've been, I've been talking about in a way that makes sense of the Bible actual narrative, right? So I did that, but then I realized that there is um, there was some uh, some stories that I skipped over, like for instance Moses, uh, and that's because there was not an explicit uh, description of watchers or giants in the story of Moses, but there are some theological connections that I thought needed to be made. So I started in another series called Chronicles of the Watchers, and those are like sort of standalone novels, but they can integrate with the Chronicles of Nephilim. So, you know, before you read the Chronicles of Nephilim, Joshua, read Moses and Chronicles of the Watchers, and they're all connected. So it's just, it's just fill, filling in between. I've got a few in, in that series. And then it ends with Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which that I'm retelling the story of the, or it's the origin story of the book of Revelation. So in other words, in, in the first century, Apostle John's writing his letter. They're trying to hide it from Nero's persecuting the Christians and killing them. And ultimately, that leads up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. And what I do is I show that, that origin story and show how the Christians of that first century might have understood the book of Revelation and, and how, how that understanding could have uh, been played out in that first century. Uh, it's it's very different from what many most people. Uh, this is no left behind. This is not your mother's left behind. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's that's very a good thing. 
very, yeah. very different. Uh, and I would argue the superior biblical view, but it's a, it's probably my best storytelling ever. It's very full of romance and, and, uh, sex and violence, not it's rated yeah. PG 13, but, um, yeah. so that's, well, that's that. The and Bible the, though, right? That's absolutely. The Bible is, absolutely. Is wild. Yep. PG-13. So that I'll be doing another novel in that soon, probably. Um, yeah, soon. But I've taken a break and I'm currently trying about to release uh, a, a new novel within the next month or two about that's called Cruel Logic. And what it is, it's a total break from all of this. And it's a contemporary serial killer story about a serial killer in a woke university. And uh-huh. it's quite, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. It, talk, it deals with the problem of evil, and um, it'll be interesting to see how 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 people receive that. Um, if you want to find some Easter eggs about it, go to my website getout.com. I actually made a short film. This was also a story that originated as a script. I've not was not able to make it as a movie, so I'm adapting into a novel. But along the way, I made this short story, a short film out of one of the scenes. Uh, it's not a gory scene at all. It's just a debate scene, but that's on my website. You have to search to find that, but it's it's pretty cool. So yeah, and then I'm going to return back to the the uh, the biblical stories and stuff. Oh, and in the meantime, I've just written a uh, did a rewrite and did a major rewrite on a script about Jesus, and I can't really talk much about it, but I do bring in some of some more my unique perspective into it. And so if that movie gets, if that movie gets made, well, I'll be able to talk about it then, but that's kind of cool. That's awesome. awesome. Well, Brian, we're so grateful for the time yeah. that you're able to spend with us. We know that it's valuable and you've got a lot on your plate, but uh, we're just thankful that you were able to spend the time. And thanks for sharing all of that because we believe that, you know, the Bible is true and there's a lot of truth that we can learn from it and we can really understand what's going on in our world today if we if we realize that Jesus has overcome everything and uh, we don't have to fear. We could stand we can stand in that truth. So But it's also exciting and it's you know, it's got blood and gore and sex and all <laughs> the crazy stuff in it that everybody likes to watch. So it's it's a cool story. Yeah, I'm that's my that background is Hollywood. All that stuff in there, all that flair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And uh, everybody out there, you can find them again at Gadawa.com. We hope that you search out these books and uh, make them happen. Read read through those series. Uh, you, you won't regret it. You, they can be found on Amazon and exclusively. on his exclusively on Amazon and then on his website as and well. So if, if I could add one thing, there also all the books are in ebook, paperback, hardback or not all of them but uh hardback some of them are or audiobook so whatever format you like it's all exclusively on amazon in fact you can just go straight to there instead of my website and you'll get plenty of information on which books to buy and and which ones you might be interested in fantastic All right. You've been uh, such a, a, an awesome guest and we're so thankful that you were able to take the time. We hope you have a great rest of your night and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, Thanks for Brian. having me guys. Thank you.